Well, good evening, everyone. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the convener of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the London School of Economics. And I want to welcome you to the second last in our series this year on nations and borders. Um, in the program, we take some pride, I think, in trying to combine lectures from eminent scholars and influential activists. And so if that's um, the sort of thing you're interested in, do um, make a point of putting your name down on our, uh, our list um, outside when you've finished. Well, it's a really great pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, Billy Bragg, the singer, songwriter and activist, um, starting as a, as a busker, I think, here in London, He's become one of the most recognisable musicians in the country, with substantial followings in other countries as well, notably in the United States, um, where I think he has ties to the folk tradition of Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and so on. He's released over 20 albums and records, and you'll be pleased to know I'm not going to list them here, other than to say that the most recent one, Tooth and Nail, came out uh, last year. But he also has a long and honourable record as an activist. And there too, I won't try to list all the work he's done, but I think it's important just to briefly mention that he's very frequently, over decades, spoken out and organised against uh, racism and fascism in this country, and he regularly appears at the great commemorative events of the labour movement notably the wonderful um, annual Tollpuddle Martyrs Festival, which commemorates the um, transportation of farm workers to New South Wales, where I hail from, um, for trying to join a union or trying to form a union. Well, we're right in the middle of a great big public debate about Europe, about the United Kingdom, about England, about what these things mean and what it would mean to be a patriot. And we have on the one hand Mr Farage saying, giving one set of answers to those questions, and on the other hand we have the Labor Party talking about uh, one nation. But what we want to do tonight is ask the question, can a patriot be a progressive at all? And that's the question to which our speaker is going to address himself. Well, he's going to speak for about 45, 50 minutes or so, and then after that we'll have plenty of time for questions and discussion. And after that, if you're interested, there's um, books by Billy Bragg outside, and he'll stay here for a bit and sign them if you want. But just to get underway, can I ask you all to join me in welcoming our speaker, Billy Bragg. Thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, I want to thank the, uh, the Ralph Miliband program here at the LSE for inviting me along to, uh, to speak to you today. And uh, just to briefly apologise to anyone who was hoping to see me uh, earlier this year. Unfortunately, uh, uh, on the day of the, uh, uh, I was to come and deliver this lecture, I had to go to a family funeral. So I do apologise if any of you inconvenienced uh, on that day. It's simply uh, not possible for me to be here on time. So. Um, in some ways, it's, it's, it's perhaps uh, good that that happened because the events of the last week have given uh, perhaps even more um, uh, weight to the considerations about uh, uh, 
who we are, and by we I mean, uh, broadly speaking, I mean the, the English. That's perhaps my, uh, what you might say, my specialist subject. And uh, I hope in, uh, in the course of the next, I don't know if it's 45 minutes, I've no idea how long this, because I had to stick a load of UKIP stuff in it, so it could be, <laughs> I don't know, it could be, I, I haven't really tried it out on anyone. So let's just, let's just see, see what happens. Anyway. I accepted the invitation to take part in this lecture series, Nations and Borders, in the wake of the Daily Mail's attack on Ralph Miliband. In October last year, the paper ran a two-page story which portrayed Miliband, a prominent Marxist thinker, as the man who hated Britain, in inverted commas. Now, the sour tone of this article serves to remind us of how the borders of national identity are constantly policed by the media. The legitimacy of those who question the powers that be must be constantly undermined by insinuations of treachery and self-hate. The aim of such slander is to reinforce the notion that there's only one way in which to organise society, and that is for the benefit of the status quo. Now, you may, you're probably aware that Daily Mail specialises in this kind of report in claiming to speak for the nation when, in fact, um, figures suggest that even its own readers cringe at, uh, at such finger-pointing behaviour. The attack on Ralph Miliband offers us an insight into this disconnection between the uh, uh, populist media and their readers. A YouGov poll conducted for the Sunday Times shortly after the uh, article was published found that... 57% of Daily Mail readers felt that the paper should apologise to Ed Miliband for the attack on his father. Among the general public, disdain for the Mail was even higher. YouGov polled 1,985 people and found that 72% said that the Mail was wrong to call Ralph Miliband the man who hated Britain. Only 17% of the sample felt that it was acceptable for the Mail to use such language. Now, you won't be surprised to hear that the Sunday Times chose not to highlight these findings, burying them in a four-page feature. The failure of the general public to come up with a knee-jerk reaction against anyone who dares to question the status quo was not deemed newsworthy. But just imagine what the headlines would have been if the figures had been reversed. The tendency, uh, this tendency is not confined to the vilification of Marxist Academics. Earlier this year, Education Secretary Michael Gove leapt to the defence of the British High Command in the First World War. The government has recently pledged £50 million in public money to mark the anniversary of the war, with school trips to battlefields and ceremonies planned over four years. So, as a result, we'll not broach any argument that seeks to question the sacrifices made by our troops. Now, why is this sort of stuff so important? It's because history is the bedrock of identity. Michael Gove knows this only too well, which is why he decided to rewrite the history curriculum to give pupils the benefit of his version of British history. But that's what history fundamentally is. It's a version of events. Even if you were there when it happened you may have a different perspective 
to uh, other bystanders. For instance, uh, next month sees the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand um, and the outbreak of uh, hostilities in 1914. I mean, these, these occurred at a time of mass literacy and widely read media, yet a century later, the jury is still out on who really started the war. Yet that kind of ambiguity about cause and effect is anathema to those who wish to promote a narrow definition of national identity. History must be presented in such a way as to suggest that the way we do things in this country is not only the best of all possible ways, but it's also the way that we've always done things. As George Orwell stated in his most famous novel, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. Well, Michael Gove currently controls the present. And uh, he's using our nation's history to reinforce the idea of what it means to be British. Hence, his anger at those who offer a dissenting view. Now, currently top among those dissenters are the Scots nationalists who seek separation from the United Kingdom in the name of self-determination. If Scotland does vote for independence later this year, it will be the biggest blow against the status quo since Ireland became a free state in 1922. Then, the British Empire was at its height, and moves were swiftly made to shore up the remaining United Kingdom. Loyalist sentiment in the north led to the creation of Northern Ireland, which in turn helped to provide the idea of continuity, that there were still four countries in the UK, and that the Union Jack retained its Irish dimension. Now that Britain no longer has the self-confidence that made us such a major player in Europe and beyond, the departure of Scotland from the Union would have serious ramifications for the way that the English see themselves. As a dominant nation within the UK, the English have traditionally been content with the idea of being British. If you look back at the uh, footage of the 1966 World Cup final, which the BBC currently has on iPlayer, I won't spoil it for you by telling you the outcome. <laughs> or talking about it too much, anyway. If you look at that footage, those supporting England at Wembley almost exclusively are waving Union Jacks. Being British has given the English a seat at the top table and allowed us to cling to the pomp and pageantry of an empire that no longer exists. Meanwhile, our Scottish and Welsh neighbours have been quietly decoupling their imperial heritage and replacing it with a new sense of national identity reinvigorated by devolution. While the English tend to cling to the past, in Cardiff and Edinburgh, they are looking towards the future. If we English had a better grasp of our history, we would recognise that the Union Jack has had to be altered every century since it was adopted after the union of the English and Scottish Parliament since 1707. That knowledge might give us some comfort as we are forced to contemplate changing it again in 2014. And while the status quo can just about get their heads around Scotland leaving, their greatest fear must be that the Union Jack unravels altogether and that a decade hence they are left holding nothing but the flag of St George. For England is a nation that no longer knows itself. 
The past few decades have offered the English plenty of opportunities to move away from the comfort blanket of Britishness. There are plenty of examples. If you watch the uh, Six Nations rugby internationals, you'll have noticed that uh, Scotland and Wales have replaced God Save the Queen with their own national anthems, while we're still singing what uh, a national anthem doesn't even mention the name of our country. And while our neighbours have developed a civic nationalism, that eschews the belligerent rhetoric of UKIP and the racism of the BNP, there is, as yet, no sign of a civic nationalist party in England. Tom Nairn, the Scottish writer, recognised this anomaly 35 years ago in his landmark book, The Breakup of Britain, predicting that the pressure for Scottish devolution would lead inexorably to independence. He observed that the English had no real idea of who they were. Only when they forged themselves a new national myth, Nairn argued, could the collective will of the English be democratically realised. Now, do modern nations need myths anymore? Well, I believe they do, because myths help us to get our bearings in the present. And this is especially important where people feel powerless in the face of rapid social change. In times of economic insecurity, tradition offers a bulwark against the dizzying pace of modernity. And when voters in England turn in such huge numbers as they did this month to an anti-immigrant party whose slogan is, we want our country back, the famously ambiguous nature of English identity stops being an asset and starts to become a bit of a problem. And with the possibility of Scottish independence forcing the, rem the remaining uh, components of the Union into uncharted territory, the need to find a new mythology that explains the past, uh, a new mythology for England that uh, explains the past, supports the present and offers us a guide to the future, this need becomes imperative. But where should we begin to construct this new English narrative. Well, tonight uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to hack into the overgrown <coughs> thicket of our history in an attempt to find the moment when the English identity was eclipsed by Britishness, and to offer some thoughts as to why this happened and how we might reconnect with that sense of Englishness. In some ways, I'm the sort of anti-Linda Collie here. I'm sort of like going, going back to undo all that Britishness stuff. Now, <clears throat> for all their uh, troubling xenophobia, UKIP have tapped into a tradition of dissent that has very deep roots in England. The European Union may not function like a medieval monarchy, but over the centuries, the English have defined themselves in opposition to unaccountable power. Magna Carta emerged from the dynastic struggles that followed the Norman Conquest. And while the barons who forced King John to grant them some basic rights did not represent the, the masses in, in any way, they were motivated, the barons, by that same sense of insecurity that drove many to vote for UKIP. 
As a far-off power issuing edicts that affect the lives of people across the continent, the medieval papacy is perhaps a better comparison with the uh, the EU. The English dissenters were at the forefront of the Reformation, replacing the international brand of Christianity with a form that was more localised and thus more accountable. And liberation from the power of Rome unleashed a radical iconoclism that had no time for the hierarchies of the medieval church. The printing of the Bible in English offered everyone the ability to read for themselves the word of God and, more radically, to discuss its contents among themselves and come to their own conclusions about Christ's teachings. James I of England was so concerned that the unordained might offer a different interpretation of scripture, that he commissioned his own version of the Bible with a text that subtly underlined his right to rule by grace of God. He also wrote a book setting out the case for absolutism, in which he stated that kings were the authors and makers of the laws, and not the laws of the kings. Now, James was the first of a new dynasty in England. He was foreign-born in Scotland. He had been baptised a Catholic. Uh, So he trod a a very tolerant path in Protestant England. He was very careful not to provoke his new subjects into into opposition. But his son, Charles I, was not so patient a king. Now, you'll know what's going to happen next and where we're going with this, but I'm going to take a little bit of time to go into some detail about it because the version that we learn, the version that's been handed down to us has, I'm afraid, been glossed by the British and stripped of its true radicalism and its essential Englishness. So we're going to spend a little bit of time. This thicket that I was talking about is the thicket of the 1640s. We're going to spend a little time in there. So at his first parliament, Charles I demanded that MPs pass a bill to uh, raise £700,000 to enable him to fight on his sister's side in the dynastic uh, Thirty Years' War. And when Parliament refused, the King responded by levelling taxes without Parliament's approval, the so-called forced loans. Anyone who refused to pay would be imprisoned without trial. And MPs responded to this by calling on tradition to assert their ancient rights, reaffirming the validity of key aspects of Magna Carta, that imprisonment without trial was illegal, that defendants could not be held in custody until their crimes had been stated before court, and that taxation without consent was illegal. Now, when both... This document was called the Petition of Rights. Uh, The Petition of Right, rather. So the Petition of Right. And when it was passed by both commons and lords... King Charles, relying on the divine right of kings to make law, simply dissolved Parliament and carried on much as before. Uh, When things came to a head in 1641, following an unsuccessful war with Scotland and an Irish rebellion, the king was forced to recall Parliament to raise funds for an army. MPs, suspicious that such troops would eventually be used against themselves, refused to vote him that money. In the belief that some members of Parliament had been colluding with the Scots against him, Charles took the unprecedented step of marching with his guards into the Chamber of the Commons to arrest five members for treason. Having been tipped off, 
The MPs had already left Westminster, but Charles had crossed the Rubicon with this action in such a crass display of absolutism. The King had undermined the security of members of the Commons, leaving them with little choice but to rebel. The English Civil War was fought over the principle that kings could only rule with the consent of the people. To many at the time, this was an idea that was both shockingly modern and deeply irreligious, challenging, as it did, a monarch anointed by God. The soldiers who fought for Parliament reacted to such accusations by giving their struggle a name that evoked both familiarity and tradition. They called it the good old cause. That's what they were fighting for, the good old cause. Now, many of the soldiers of the parliamentary army were members of radical Protestant sects, the rejected ecclesiastical and political hierarchies. Together, these dissenters were known as the independents. Now, after several years of stalemates and skirmishes, Oliver Cromwell forged Parliament's troops into a formidable fighting force, many of whose officers and men were independents. The new model army took to the field in 1645 and won resounding victories over King Charles at Naseby and Langport. His army shattered, Charles surrendered and was taken prisoner. Although the war had ended, the new model army was not disbanded as many feared that Charles' supporters in Scotland and Ireland would come to his aid. Parliament, having proved its case by winning the war, was anxious to restore stability, and within a few weeks the grandees in Parliament had offered the King a negotiated settlement that not only put him back on the throne, but restored his right of veto over the Commons. On hearing this news, the new model army began to ask what they had risked their lives for. To express their grievances, they proceeded to elect two representatives, who they called agitators, from each regiment, along with two officers who were to sit with their generals to remonstrate for their rights. To ensure no deal was made with the king, the agitators kidnapped him and brought him to their de facto headquarters at Oxford. And with this act, by taking the king into their custody, the new model army had become the most powerful political force in the land. Now, months of manoeuvring followed in which the King, Parliament and the City of London sought to come to terms with this new political reality. For the first time in history, the people of England had, in the New Model Army, an organised body that spoke on their behalf. Looking for a way to articulate their ideas... The New Model Army turned to a group of men who had been agitating for change since before the Civil War. The Levellers, who were so-called by their enemies, the Levellers called for the abolition of the House of Lords, the dissolution of the current Parliament, the sovereignty of the people, and equality for all before the law. Their leading thinkers had been imprisoned by Parliament for expressing such views. Now, in collaboration with the Levellers, the agitators in the army created an agreement of the people for a firm and present peace upon grounds of common right. Now, this agreement of the people contained four main clauses. Firstly, that the current parliament be dissolved and new elections to, uh, were to be held. That parliament should henceforth be elected every two years. 
that MPs should be elected in proportion to the population of the constituencies that they came from, and that Parliament, consisting of a single elected House, should be the supreme authority in the land. The document also asserted certain native rights, which they claimed for all Englishmen, freedom of conscience, freedom from impressment into the armed forces, and equality before the law. The grandees responded by inviting the agitators to debate their new constitutional proposals before the General Council of the Army at Putney Parish Church in October 1647. At, these, uh, at the Grand Council Parliament was represented by Oliver Cromwell and by his son-in-law, Henry Ireton. It immediately became clear that the men of the New Model Army believed that by defeating the King in the Civil War, they had won themselves the right to vote. They now demanded that this be extended to all free-born Englishmen. They obviously weren't thinking about women at this time now, but obviously this was, you know, was uh, 1647 and they didn't have the benefit of uh, the, uh, the sort of rights and the sort of thinking that we had. So when they speak about Englishmen, they do literally mean men living in England, I'm afraid. But um, Ayrton responded to this suggestion that uh, the vote be extended to uh, all Englishmen by insisting that people should only be allowed to vote uh, men should only be allowed to vote if they owned property. Now, ultimately, a compromise was reached when Cromwell accepted that men over the age of 21 should have the vote, while the agitators, in turn, agreed to the exclusion of servants, those receiving arms, and anybody who had fought for the king. And debates ended in agreement that the proposals should be presented to the new model army for ratification at a mass rendezvous. However, Cromwell, fearing a loss of Parliament's authority, suspended all further meetings of the Army Council. Now, before the New Model Army had time to respond to Cromwell's treachery, King Charles escaped from captivity, which sparked a second civil war. The Royalist forces were again defeated, but it now became clear to Cromwell and his supporters that for as long as Charles were king, they could never feel secure. Sending him into exile abroad would only allow Charles to find foreign allies and return at the head of an invasion force. Having him quietly done away with, as they did uh, in more medieval times, having him quietly done away with would have left Parliament with blood on their hands. Realisation began to dawn that the only way to end the, dis the disruptive threat of the Stuart dynasty was to abolish the monarchy. And when the grandees in Parliament again opened negotiations with the King, radicals in the army called for Charles to be brought to justice for starting the Second Civil War. When Parliament voted to allow the King to return to London to continue negotiations, Cromwell, Ireton and the army took swift preventive action. They produced a document called the Army Remonstrance, that declared that the people of England were the sovereign force in the land and that the safety of the people is the supremacy of the law. When the grandees in Parliament refused to debate this until after their negotiations with the King were completed, 
Ayrton initiated a purge that removed all of those MPs hostile to the political aspirations of the New Model Army from Parliament. Now, this act uh, has been seen by Whiggish historians as a, as a dark mark on, the, uh, on English history, a putsch. But it's arguable that the agitators at that time, elected from each regiment of the New Model Army, had greater legitimacy than those hanging on in the long parliament. But whatever the case, the leveller-inspired agitators were now driving the agenda. With their allies, the independents in control of parliament, the English Civil War had entered its revolutionary phase. The so-called rump parliament, the, uh, the purged parliament, is referred to as the rump parliament in our history, declared itself to be the supreme power in the land, with authority to make laws without consent of either king or the House of Lords. And one of the first acts it passed was to charge Charles Stuart with subverting the fundamental laws and liberties of the land and of maliciously making war on the Parliament and the people of England. Now, this was in itself an unprecedented act. Hitherto, treason had been a crime committed against the Crown. Now, treason was declared a crime against the state. And whichever way you look at it, the sentence for treason remained the same, death. And like many tyrants throughout history, Charles refused to recognise the right of the court to try him, declining to answer any questions at his trial. The case for the prosecution rested upon the foundations of Magna Carta and the principle that no one was above the law, not even the king. The trial lasted a week, and on the 27th of January 1649, Charles I was sentenced to death and beheaded three days later in Whitehall, taking the English constitution into uncharted waters. With the nation seemingly in shock at what it had done, the levellers sought to seize the moment by hastily redrafting the agreement of the people extending it far beyond its original four demands in the hope that it might act as a new constitution, as a written constitution for the new English Republic. Among its proposals were the right to vote for all men over the age of 21, excepting servants, beggars and royalists, annual elections to Parliament with MPs serving one term only, no army officer, treasurer or lawyer could be an MP to prevent conflict of interests. The equality of all persons before the law. <coughs> Trials to be heard before 12 jurymen freely chosen by their community. English to replace Latin as the language in which trials are conducted and cases not to extend longer than six months. No one to be punished for refusing to testify against themselves in criminal cases. The death penalty to be applied only in cases of murder. The abolition of imprisonment for debt. Tithes to be abolished and parishioners to have the right to choose their own ministers. Taxation in proportion to real or personal property. The abolition of military conscription, monopolies and excise taxes. 
To the body of the new agreement, the levellers attached a series of reforms to act as a manifesto in what they hoped would be the coming elections for the new parliament. And among these uh, reforms was the provision at public expense in every county of hospitals for the nurture, maintenance and relief of the sick, lame and aged. Free primary education for boys. Sorry about that. Restoration to the poor of their enclosed lands. Freedom of the press. Jailers who ran prisons for profit to become civil servants. The codification of the civil and criminal law. Now these are, these are incredible ideas for the 1640s. Um, you know, not least those that are uh, to do with liberty. They're, they're uh, pretty revolutionary ideas. But to add in there the taxation in proportion to real or personal property. These are far reaching ideas um, that hadn't really been uh, expressed before in this way. Free primary education, hospitals uh, set up at the public purse, the codification of the criminal and civil law, basically a written constitution. These were, these were seriously revolutionary ideas. And with this single document written during the most revolutionary period in English history, we find ideas that resonate down the ages. The roots of the American Constitution are to be found in this document and of our own welfare state. The levellers, remember, were working before the notion of individual liberty had been developed. They're working, you know, they're a hundred years before Tom Paine even starts to put ideas down on paper. And they are also working before the, the link between democracy and freedom had been properly established. But they saw at the trial of King Charles that it was not enough to simply abolish the monarchy. That that didn't solve the problems that they faced. They felt that to ensure that tyranny did not rise again, structures had to be put in place that not only uh, held those in power to account, but also that offered citizens the means by which to reach their full potential. And in this sense, the Agreement of the people was the glory of England. Parliament viewed its contents with disdain. Before the New Model Army could press for the agreement to be discussed, Cromwell ordered them to Ireland to suppress Catholics loyal to the Stuart dynasty. Now some troops refused to embark until their grievances were addressed and the agreement was debated wearing sea-green ribbons to show their support for the level of reforms. Mutiny was only avoided when Cromwell made a conciliatory speech to the troops, pledging to carry out the demands made in the agreement specifically with regard to regular elections. The New Model Army felt strongly that the parliament that they had fought for was still sitting. The king was dead, everything had changed, and yet they were still having to deal with the same parliament, the long parliament, the remains of the long parliament that uh, there had been no free elections to. Now, history will show that the New Model Army did go to Ireland, embarking on a bloody campaign that scarred Anglo-Irish relations for centuries, sadly. And with their main rivals out of the way, the rump parliament settled into a programme of moderate reform, which was backed up by a new law, uh, a new treason law that was aimed at excluding 
royalists and levellers alike. And with all of the movement's leaders imprisoned, support for the levellers' reforms ebbed away. Cromwell eventually grew tired of the rump, replaced it with an appointed parliament of saints in the hope of bringing godly governance to the Commonwealth. When that failed to deliver, Cromwell sacked a lot of them and took on the title of Lord Protector. And the uh, English Republic kind of died of boredom. His death in uh, 1658 led to the restoration of the monarchy, bringing to an end a time of radical debate and experiment. Yet... Within a generation, the Stuarts had again brought England to the brink of civil war. Arbitrary power was again the source of English unrest. The reign of the restored Charles II was marred by Parliament's attempts to exclude Catholics from holding power. The papacy, which supported England's great rivals Spain and France, was seen as a threat to English liberty. And when MPs sought to pass a bill excluding the king's younger brother James from the succession on grounds of his Catholicism, Charles I did what his father did in times of trouble and dissolved Parliament. In 1685, Charles died without issue, and his brother took the throne as James II of England, initiating a series of pro-Catholic policies that eventually led to his downfall. The birth of a son in 1688 sparked the English Protestant nobility into action. Fearing a Catholic dynasty, they invited the king's son-in-law, the Protestant William of Orange, to invade England and put his wife Mary on the throne. Realising that the English people, distrustful of Catholicism, were against him, James offered no resistance and fled to France. Parliament decided that James' hasty departure amounted to abdication, And on the 13th of February, 1689, Parliament offered the crown to William and Mary with the proviso that they would assent to a Bill of Rights that established the supremacy of Parliament. Now, the Bill of Rights, so-called Bill of Rights, the Bill of Rights did include a few civil rights, uh, mainly to do with the uh, actually bearing arms, which again made its way into the uh, American Constitution. Those those rights applied only to Protestants. But essentially, the the Bill of Rights was an agreement between Parliament and the Crown. It didn't involve the people whatsoever. The Bill of Rights finally settled the issue over which the Civil War had been fought. The The divine right of kings had been brought to heel by the divine right of property. And now that they finally felt secure, the merchants in Parliament created the Bank of England in 1694. With stable political and financial institutions in place, the conditions were set for the expansion of the British Empire. Now, from here on in, the history of England becomes kind of smothered in red, white and blue. The Union Jack kind of like drapes a veil over the Uh, events of the 1640s. Instead, the events of 1688-1689 become the foundation myth of Britishness, dubbed the Glorious Revolution by later historians seeking to glamorise the birth of the British state. Those same historians tended to view the events of the English Revolution as an aberration, an outbreak of anarchy that was simply un-British. 
The execution of Charles I was portrayed as a tragedy, the Commonwealth a failure, and republicanism became the most treasonous of all creeds. Thus was perpetuated the myth that the British simply don't do revolution. Did the grandees of 1689, many of them young men when the levellers were at their most active, fear a resurgence of that dissenting spirit among the English? Because despite their disdain, that spirit, that dissenting spirit carries on through British history in the republicanism of Tom Paine, the agitation of John Wilkes, the debates of the Hamden Clubs, the Chartist demand for annual parliaments, the suffragettes' call for universal suffrage, the trade unions' campaigns for free health care, education and better working conditions. And what links the levellers with those that followed them is a determination to hold absolute power to account. That good old cause of English descent still resonates today in the form of opposition to globalisation. In the 21st century, the divine right of kings has been replaced by the divine right of the market. The ability of the free market to solve all of society's problems has become an article of faith among policymakers. Any attempt to hold the free market to account is met with ferocious opposition. All regulation is attacked as red tape. Those who seek to organise workers are demonised. The Human Rights Act is denounced for interfering in our unwritten constitution. Politicians who fiercely defend our national sovereignty appear happy to see decision-making to the bond markets and who, despite all the scientific evidence, is still fighting to avoid taking any responsibility for causing climate change the free marketeers. Across the developed world, governments of all shades have surrendered to the forces of globalisation, leaving their citizens without the protections that were built up in the wake of the Great Depression. Denied proper representation in the workplace, their wages have stagnated. Social housing has been sold off, leaving many at the mercy of landlords or relying on charity. Technological advances have led to the end of traditional modes of employment. The demonisation of those needing support from the state has left many unemployed facing relative poverty. And for the first time since the war, people fear that their children will be worse off than they were. Capitalism has brought many benefits throughout the centuries, but it has always relied on an undertow of insecurity threatening to sweep workers away at any moment. Now, in the past, such insecurities could be addressed by national assemblies, national parliaments. That's how the Labour Party came into being. Under globalisation, however, no such legislation is possible because there are no longer any borders for capital. Corporations shift profits off offshore, factories move abroad, they expect governments to top up low wages. Faceless they are, untouchable. Yet they rule, uh, they rule our lives, yet we have no means by which to hold them accountable for their actions. So is it any wonder then that when an institution that seeks to harm it, harness globalisation asks our opinion, we lash out at it in anger? The earthquake that occurred last week across Europe 
represents a revolt against unfettered markets. The leftist parties elected to the European Parliament in Greece and Spain are a traditional, uh, a recognisable reaction to austerity. The shocking success of the Front National in France represents a racist lurch to the right. But Marine Le Pen's economic policies offer some clues to what is behind this sudden shift. She wants to halt the transatlantic trade and investment partnership, which is currently moving through the European Parliament and uh, the American Congress, which will make it even harder for national governments to regulate markets by introducing US corporate law into the European Union. Now, in Britain, you often hear UKIP voters say, nobody asked us if we wanted mass immigration. And that is, that's an expression of rage against the unaccountable power of the markets and the changes that have been forced upon them, both economic and social. Their security... Um, UKIP voters are, feel they're unable to hold to account the corporations that make the decisions that greatly affect their lives. Their security is undermined by decisions made thousands of miles away by corporations they cannot hold to account. So instead they lash out at the physical manifestation of globalisation, the immigrants who come to their communities seeking a better life for their children. Unfortunately, globalisation has deprived many of the indigenous population of that possibility, and their frustration at this situation is making both our communities and our politics highly volatile. And these tensions are, are visible in the debate about Scottish independence. The Yes campaign argues that an independent Scotland offers an alternative to the free market dogma that has dominated the UK since the election of Margaret Thatcher by building an economy in an independent Scotland that puts people first. For the right... Freedom has always meant freedom from regulation. It's a mantra that seeks to avoid any responsibility towards society while leading inexorably to the dehumanising catch-22 of zero-hours contracts. For those of us who wish to counter this tendency, who believe that the economy should serve society and not vice versa, then we need to reconnect with the traditional values espoused by the levellers in the 17th century. Strip away the pomp and circumstance of the British ruling elite and their imperial pretensions and you're left with an England defined by dissent. From Magna Carta through the Reformation to the execution of Charles I, the English have believed that if you cannot hold those in power to account, you are not really free. And this is an idea that comes into sharp contrast in an, in an era of globalisation and transnational capitalism. Our answer to the offshore power of globalisation must be greater empowerment. The decentralisation of the state to give citizens the right to make decisions that affect their communities. Nothing short of a new agreement of the people that holds global capital and its agents to account. Thank you very much.
Is it good? Yeah, cool. Okay, well, now we've got time for questions and discussion. Um, I should say, in a sense, it'll be the, the first round of questions and discussion for Billy Bragg because I, I believe later tonight he has to continue the discussion on Newsnight um, that we're launching here. So um, do please uh, indicate if you'd like to uh, ask a question now. And when I call you, could you say who you are and where you're from? OK, who, who would like to start? Ah, this gentleman over here. Hi, thanks very much. My name's uh, Michael Williams. I enjoyed um, what you were saying about the 17th century, an underexplored part of British history. All school children should learn about that at the centre. It seems to me, though, that the best way of holding global capital to account is not through uh, the nation-state. In a way, the nation-state is too small to do that. So far as I can judge, the only body in Europe that is potentially capable of holding global capital to account is the European Union accountable to its citizens. That's why I regard all of this nationalism, whether it's from the left or the right, as reactionary. We need to look forward to a European demos. And what I think is, is, is encouraging about the last, uh, the recent election is for the first time people around Europe have been discussing European issues and they've been focusing on European debates and what Europe is for. So I welcome the arrival of dissenters into the European Parliament in the knowledge that for the first time it will become or could become an arena for genuine debate about what the European institutions can do for the European people, provide that they are properly accountable. And that means that the European Union needs to move forward to the point where the executive is elected by the European people, not simply the parliament. I, I totally agree and, and would support all of that. But the problem that we have is that um, not only is there a lack of uh, accountability uh, towards Brussels, but there's also a lack of accountability within England. The devolution uh, agenda has not been uh, extended to the English. Um, I live in the southwest region. I only vote in one election with proportional representation. That was last week, the European election. So in many ways, um, I, you know, I understand how... Uh, the Europe, because the European Union has brought us protections from, cap, from uh, excesses of capitalism as well, uh, which has been a, a great boon. But I think we all have to accept that it needs to change. My heart sank uh, watching the debates between Nigel Farage and, um, and the Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg at the very end of the last one when they asked him to describe the European Union in 10 years' time, and he said, same as it is now. I mean, it was like not only was it an own goal, but it was a, a you know, for anyone uh, with a, a, any hope of, of being able to hold capitalism to account at that level. But it will be a fight because at the same time, the European Union is trying to bring in the TTIP, uh, which threatens to undermine uh, the nation's ability to maintain a welfare state. It threatens to bring the market into even more of our decision-making protests. So, you know, we do need a, ref a reformed Europe. And I think we also at the same time have to recognise that 
um, the anger that underlies the, the, the votes for, for UKIP uh, and to not simply dismiss it as, as reactionary, to accept that immigration um, can cause problems. I come from Barking in East London. I was there this afternoon. It has the cheapest housing anywhere in London. As a result, anyone who comes to live in the city comes there to look for houses. Now, I have, you know, I, don't, I have no problem with immigration, but the pressure that puts on the infrastructure over there deserves to be recognised by central government, and they should send more money out there to deal with it and get on with building some more houses down the Thames Gateway, which they haven't done for some reason. That's not racist to talk about that. What's racist is to blame... Not to talk about immigration, that's okay, but to blame all the problems on immigrants, that's racism. We have to police that line really, really heavily, but we also do have to have a debate about the pros and the cons of, of globalisation and try, and try and find that balance so that we have uh, an economy that functions in the support of society and not the other way around. Okay. Um, who would like to ask a question next? Okay. Um, this gentleman with the cap, and then you go first, and then after you, the woman with the long hair. Just wait till this thing comes. And say who you are, please. My name is Amanullah Khan. I, I say I'm a socialist, but I believe in globalization, which helps the people, you know, and doesn't become a King Charles, you know, for mm -hmm. the people of the world. My question is, sir. It's a very good lecture, and I think it's, uh, your book is going to be a contribution to new thought. But don't you think that the market mafia, which is spreading its uh, very powerful wings, you know, through Pentagon and the military-industrial complexes of the world globally as a force to be countable to none, King Charles could be accountable, and he suffered, rightly or wrongly. But this market mafia, which has become a monster, I'm speaking very objectively, and it is now beyond the pale of nations. So in a way, I feel, and I agree with you, that the concept and the old theory of a nation, even the concept of nation is now crumbling down. The world is looking as you are saying, for some kind of universalization of accountability in which, uh, if I go, um, I, I don't want to refer to Marx, though he's buried here, and he was a great man. The thing is this, that the cleavage between the, the gulf between the haves and the have-nots is being given, uh, is, being, uh, is, is, is being given the sanctity of the global law. As President Bush said after he bombed to smithereens Iraq that now we have the new first world order. Yeah, yeah. I think that is the crux of the matter. The, the monster of uh, market mafia which yeah. is dominating right from India yeah. to the streets of well, to the Wall Street, you know. Okay, I thank think you. that is something very, very uh, fatally dangerous to the rights of people. Thank you very much. Let's, I agree. Let's hear I'm with you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Marx because I think um, the way that we articulated our politics in the 20th century has changed incredibly uh, to the extent that I don't think the language of Marxism resonates with people anymore, unfortunately. Uh, but the problem that we have is that the issues that Marx identified have not been resolved. 
So we need to find a new language with which to address these issues. So words such as um, uh, accountability, um, compassion. You know, I, I, if, I, if I were to say, um, perhaps not in this uh, austere gathering, but just out, down the pub talking to someone, I want to live in a socialist society, that, that language comes with a lot of baggage. I would have to explain to them what socialism would be like before they might agree. But if I were to say to them that I wanted to live in a compassionate society, um, then I think we would have a, perhaps grounds for agreement and we could start to try and build a consensus around that. And I don't... I know some people have a problem with this kind of language, but I don't have a problem with this kind of language because I believe that uh, socialism at heart... Uh, is fundamentally a form of organised compassion. And any socialism that is not that at heart isn't really worthy of the name socialism. OK, this uh, woman in okay. the middle. Should I stand up? Is it? No, it's you up don't... to you, really. You're fine there. We see. You should we say it's you. We see it's you. Uh, so I'm Astrid Hamper at King's, and I definitely do agree with your idea of the tradition of dissent in England throughout the centuries. This is clearly what has defined not only England but Britain so far and what also defines the British uh, stance towards the European Union. Um, but I believe that if there is this connection between crisis and tradition, so a, a recourse to tradition in, in times of crisis, uh, shouldn't we remember Churchill maybe who said that you should never let a good crisis go to waste and use this crisis in which the European Union obviously is at the moment to find a new tradition and to, to find a, a European tradition not a British or an English tradition even but a, a new real pan-European tradition because I um, very much agree with the gentleman who spoke before it is too late to think in terms of the region or the nation state or any limited uh, entity like that. Well, I, I totally accept what you're saying, and, and I think of myself as an internationalist, but I also think of myself as an English patriot. And uh, the reason that I became uh, an English patriot is that uh, around the time that the British National Party began winning council seats, um, I started talking about these ideas around Englishness and found that friends on the left, on the traditional left, wouldn't speak about nationalism or identity at all because they were internationalists. And that had the unfortunate effect of leaving a vacuum where national identity was, which was very easily filled by the far right. And the end result of that was that they were left alone without any... Uh, any, anyone to contradict them. They were left alone to decide who does and who doesn't belong. And I was left in a situation of seeing friends of mine being intimidated by people carrying the flag of my country. And that's when I started to become patriotic about it. Now, patriotism is a word almost as loaded as socialism. But anybody aware of uh, left-wing politics will know that there are many types of socialism. And so there are many types of patriotism as well. It's not all socialism. You know, our enemies try and suggest that all socialism is like Stalinism. Some suggest all patriotism is like fascism. But there are degrees. And, you know, if proof be needed, look at the difference between... Uh, this is more nationalism, but the difference between the BMP and the SNP, two very different political parties. Which of those two is really the nationalist party? 
So whilst agreeing with you on the internationalist level, we have to address the vacuum of Englishness, not least because the Scots are going to highlight it. You know, the Scots referendum, win or lose, either they're going to win and become independent and we're going to, they're going to pull away the bathrobe of the Union Jack and we're going to be left there naked or they're going to be bought off with Devo Max, maximum devolution. And people are going to start looking over the border and thinking to themselves, well, if, devolu- if all three parties, which is how it will be, all three parties will offer them maximum devolution, people in England are going to say, well, if this is so great, maximum devolution, why can't we have a dose of it? So in that situation, it, for those of us who believe in a more progressive society, we have to start to try and articulate an inclusive sense of Englishness that is based on uh, where you are rather than where your grandparents came from. A sense of Englishness based on, on more on place than on race. For many, many people of, uh, particularly people of colour, uh, identify much deeper with Britishness than I do with Englishness. They see Englishness as a, a white ethnic uh, designation. And we have, to, you know, we have to overcome that and make people understand that you know, England is, uh, you know, all of so many of the things that we think of as Britishness are inherently English traits, you know. Even big London is in England. So that's why I think we should at least be talking about it. Not, not you know, I don't want everyone standing back gardens saluting the flag of St George on, um, on you know, uh, Shakespeare's birthday or anything like that. <laughs> but I think we need to be not allowing uh, the reactionaries and the bigots and the xenophobes free reign to decide who, who belongs with us and who doesn't. Thank you. OK. Um, could we have someone at the top there, the, the woman in the green, to begin with? Hi, my name is Rebecca Reed. I'm from London. Really quick question. What do you think our English national anthem should be? Well... <laughs> A national anthem should, at the very least, mention the name of your country. I think that's the absolute uh, basis. So that's Royal Britannia is out the window. So is uh, Land of Hope and Glory. And uh, if we're looking for a song that we all know that we can stand up and sing with our hands on our hearts, I'm, uh, I'm always drawn towards Jerusalem in the sense that um, it doesn't suggest that God, uh, Jesus was an Englishman. Uh, it's, it's a series of questions. Blake is asking if, you know, did those feet in ancient time, question mark. You know, he's writing at the time of the Industrial Revolutions just starting to kick off. The dark satanic mills are being built. And Blake is saying, I think Blake is saying, come on, lads, if Christ turned up tomorrow and saw all this shit, what do you think he would say? Do you think he'd say, <laughs> well done, this is just what I had in mind? <laughs> or do you think he would? And also... Uh, we would then have the only, the only national anthem in the British Isles that doesn't talk about uh, killing our neighbours. All, uh, all the other national anthems have blood in them, and guess whose blood it is? Um, even, even in uh, the Welsh anthem, Hen Glad van Chadai, you can't really hear it in the Welsh, but trust me, it's in there. Um, the, um, the thing about Jerusalem is it's in that, that second verse, you know, when he talks about whatever situation England is, where, wherever we are, it could be better, you know. It's so, you know, those bring me my bow, bring me my arrows of desire, you know. We've got some work to do here, you know. I shall not cease from mental fight. 
nor shall my sword sleep in my hand. And here's the really, really important bit of it. Because he's asked for all these things in, in his own name, I, you know. But he says at the end, till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. I'd stand up and sing that at a football. In fact, I usually stand up and sing when I've had a few beers. So, Yeah. I know it's not to everyone's taste. I know it does have a strange, weirdly re- religious connotation. But the spirit of it, you know, there is a spiritual dimension to nationality. It's not all just about place. There's something much, much deeper that we might refer to as belonging that is very, very hard to define. I saw a great documentary once about a woman from Bristol who uh, they traced her matrilineal DNA. She was a... a, 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 a the daughter of Af- Af- uh, Afro-Caribbean immigrants. And she identified um, very, very strongly with her African heritage. She dressed as an African and taught African culture in schools in Bristol. And they found her matrilineal uh, DNA back to a village off the coast of West Africa, and they took her there. It was the most powerful program. I mean, she literally sat above the village of her ancestors before walking down. It was just so powerful. It totally drew me in, and she went and stayed with them, and they found these people in this village were a direct DNA match with her. They were a family, and it was just absolutely incredible. And uh, at the very end of the program, they, they were uh, saying, asking her, you know, what, what her feelings was about it, and she said, well, she said, now I know where I'm from. And then she got on a plane and went back to live in Bristol. And... <laughs> The point about that is that for all of that knowledge and that for all of that in- intuitive connection with her African identity, she didn't belong with those people there. She belonged where her community were. She belonged where her family were. She belonged where her friends were. That actually belonging is stronger than race and it's stronger than, than uh, uh, intuition. It, it's harder to put a finger on. It's one of those things that you can't easily touch on but it, it's a very very powerful and, and, I, and I fear that um, those people who, who, talk, who vote for UKIP and talk about wanting their country back have lost that sense of belonging for whatever reason and we need to work as much as we can to help them to reconnect their sense of belonging with our multicultural society because they as much belong in that as we to belong in, in the society that we're part of you know it's it's the space that we occupy together that is England, rather than any prescription. And just briefly, if I might, when you were talking you know, about tradition, I'm not saying that what I said there is the tradition. I'm saying there are many traditions flowing together. And rather than reject all ideas of tradition, we need to identify the tradition that most speaks to us. And that tradition of dissent speaks to me the strongest. And, and, uh, and so when I think of... of uh, when I lie back and think of England, um, <laughs> I've, managed to, I've managed to remove all the images of Bobby Moore, Jeff Hurst and Martin Peters from my mind and, and instead now I think of that, that long, long tradition, that sense of, of belonging that's rooted in knowing that other people struggled on these issues before. And, you know, we're, we're not the first people to have encountered these, these problems. So that's, that's how tradition helps, I think. Okay, there was a gentleman up the top there in the front row, and then we'll come back down to the ground floor. There's a mic here, mate. Everyone can hear you. Say who you are, please. My name's Roger Goff. I come from um, Stroud in Gloucestershire, where um, Laurie Lees 
um, habitat is just about to be desecrated by so many um, erections of houses right across the spectrum of the Stroud Valley that it makes me weep. It makes me weep, and quite some time ago, I decided to take some sort of action because it's the way that I see it. There is no one way, I would suggest, that there is no one answer. Let's take the EU. The EU is a crock of shit, excuse me. Uh, If you are seeking compassion, and you mentioned it this evening, then where was the compassion in respect of the residents of Greece? They were left, they were left abysmally to fend for themselves, to go through dustbins to try and find something to eat. No wonder the country, their country, has completely um, uh, nosedived. Thank heavens that I wasn't a Greek and I'm a Briton. Um, I make no apology. I said this would possibly be the Hispu uh, interlude. I'm a Metropolitan Police Officer of 30 years. I retired 20 years ago. Um, I was a member of UKIP. I actually um, was uh, an agent in the 25 um, election. To be quite frank, round about that time, they were crap. Your opinion, I'm sure, is that they are still crap. But they couldn't then have organised the proverbial in a brewery. I went to the Marsham Street meeting the other night. It was totally different. My friend, who is uh, an erstwhile member of the Socialist Worker Party, who I took along for a laugh, we rose in unison at what was being said. And I will agree that saying something and doing something is totally different. But the three political parties in this country are, much like the European Union, a crock. They have lied, they have lied, and they have right. repeatedly Sorry, lied. let me just ask you to, because we want to get in a few okay. questions, and so, you've had a bit of a run. If Europe was the, uh, if Europe, the EU is the answer, I hate to think what the question was. Well, the, que- the question is, how do we, how do we um, ensure that uh, globalised capitalism floats everyone's boat and doesn't become... Uh, something that only uh, ends up in the uh, in the bank accounts of people who don't bank in the I Street but bank offshore. How do we bring that home? I mean, I, without wishing to be disrespectful for, to UKIP, because I do, I have a lot of respect for their voters. As I'm saying, I'm not so sure about their party, but, but people who voted for them, I do have a lot of respect for. And don't wish to be dismissive in, in any way. But what happened last week wasn't an earthquake; it was an aftershock of the 2008 crash. Had that crash not happened, we probably wouldn't have been have that situation in Europe. The awful, as you mentioned, the, you know, the, the troika, the so-called troika of international uh, globalisation, not, not only in, did they uh, do it to Greece, they did it to Italy as well, put in a totally unelected technocrat. That's not a Europe that I want to live in. That's the absolute opposite of Europe. The Europe that I want to live in is the social Europe that, that protects people, that makes sure that everybody uh, you know, benefits from living in a, in a society that's rich. You know, poverty is relative here. People shouldn't be going to food banks. And, you know, I agree with you that the three mainstream parties have, have let us down terribly. And in some ways, the, the result, the ambiguous result of the last election was a reflection of that. We are in uncharted waters, but we have to guard against um, demonising 
those people less fortunate than ourselves in society, whether they are people who've come a long way to work here, people who are uh, having to rely on the state for support for whatever reason. When I talk about a compassionate society, that's the kind of society that I want to live in, where everybody gets the, uh, the means by which to to themselves, for themselves, reach their own potential. And that's hard, and it's, a, it's an idealistic thought, and I can't say it's the, you know, I can't give it an ideological uh, 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 dressing, but I think we're in a post-ideological time now, and the rise of UKIP is a, a manifestation of that. There's a lot of ideas out there, and uh, I think that uh, I, I see UKIP as a de facto party of English nationalism. I'm not sure if that's a good or bad thing. Yeah, I saw it, yeah. yeah. I agree, yeah, yeah. Be assimilated yeah. by the rules of the EU. Yeah. The EU I agree. Where's the justice? I agree. Where is the compassion? Uh, there's a fight on. There's a fight. Okay, um, I think... There's another bloke over there, look. <laughs> <laughs> it is true that there are many non-blokes in the audience, so if you are a non-bloke, please feel free to indicate. Um... <laughs> We don't want it to be like the 1740s. Well, in the absence of that, I've got a gentleman in the middle here. I think, was it you with the blue um, shirt? And then we'll come to uh, the gentleman with the suit. And, and do please say who you are and where you're from. Okay. You don't have to say you voted for an election. By the way. That's, not, that's not a pre... It's a bit about that, actually. I, I, my name's Carl Conyu, and I'm a, um, an administrator at the LSE. Um, I've got a question as mm. well, if that's all right. Um, uh, my dad, as a long-time trade union activist and anti-fascist campaigner, voted UKIP in the elections because he feels, he says, disconnected from the political process and fed up with a lot of middle-class people talking about things that aren't relevant to him. Mm. Is he uh, classic English, showing dissent? Is he mad... Is he English and mad? And what can I do about it? <laughs> well, the English... I mean, I, I, could, have, I could have actually uh, renamed this uh, lecture The English, a nation defined by Eorism. Because there is one of the things, you know, we don't want to talk to people on the train, but if we do, invariably we want to complain about it. So there is an element of Eeyoreism, and maybe uh, Nigel Farage is the sort of party of Eeyore at the moment. Uh, there's always a lot of votes in Eeyoreism, in my experience. But, we, you know, for, for people who, whose politics were formed in the uh, 20th century, these are sort of trying times. Um, you know, the ideological framework around which we used to debate this stuff has kind of disappeared. Uh, you know, in the, during the minor strike, the Tories and Labour were the diametric opposites of one another. Now, it's very difficult to tell them all apart. The professionalisation of politics has taken a lot of the uh, dynamic out of the debate. It's become, you know, 24-hour news has turned it into a load of sound bites. What are the driving principles of, uh, of, of the main political parties anymore, you know. I think that's, you know, for someone who's been doing their politics for a long time, that, that's, you can understand why people get fed up and want to at least vote for someone who's going to stir things up a little bit, you know. But there is a Green Party, tell him. 
Their their their, uh, their economics uh, stuff's pretty old labour, actually. The Greens, they're uh, they're definitely worth a punt. If you <laughs> if you don't mind windmills. <laughs> yeah, just just tell them to keep the faith. That's my advice. Okay, Simon. Simon in the suit here. There we go. Simon in the suit. Yeah, what can you... Colleague of Robin. I'm I'm Simon Hicks, head of the government department here at the LSE. Um, politicised in the 80s listening to your music, Billy. But anyway, um, my question is about, is, there re- is it possible to build an English nationalism today given the increasing divide within England um, between the south-east, uh, economic divide, a political divide, uh, a, a cultural divide increasingly, mm. kind of globalised southeast of England that we at the LSE benefit enormously from, yep. and the rest of the country, which yeah. now increasingly votes UKIP? Well, this is a very interesting uh, uh, question. John Crudders, who I have a lot of respect for, recently said that the division is no longer between left and right, but between those who want to devolve and those who want to centralise. And I think he's very right in that, that the response to globalisation has to be devolution. As capital pulls away and seeks to to get beyond the reach of of national governments, we have to start giving people more control locally so that they have greater say over their their lives. My, uh, you know, if if the Scots do uh, become independent... Um, and the case for English devolution becomes imperative, uh, my own personal preference would not actually be for an English parliament. I fear that, for me in the south-west, a a, a parliament of 50 million people is not going to be much more responsive than a party of 60 million people. Um, And I would would fear that it would still be too distant for people and dominated by London and the south-east, as we already have that. I would prefer uh, regional assemblies in the uh, nine regions of England with uh, the same powers that Holyrood currently has, the Scottish Parliament has, for tax variants. I think um, regional assemblies, regional devolution would give us the opportunity to rebalance power away from London and the South East. For instance, you know, there would be um, perhaps issues on which the South West and the North East and the North West could combine together with other regions to rebalance power. And regional rather than um, and county level, because most of the regions, I think apart from the North East, which is around 1.9 million, most of the English regions have between 4.5 and 5 million people in each. And you need that kind of tax base to be able to do what they're doing in Scotland, which is comparable. So English regional government to, to help, help us to deal with the problematic side of the success of London um, and, and to try and rebalance the, the economics within the United Kingdom at the same time as working on a, on a European level to, uh, to better match our economies so that everybody, North, North Europe or South Europe, so that everybody uh, benefits from the from globalisation whilst also uh, being protected from its worst excesses. I think the, uh, the crash in, in 2008, which precipitated this crisis in Europe, is, is still going to rumble on for a while. I mean, I don't know if anybody saw the um, governor of the Bank of England speaking this week about the um, inherent problems when capitalism becomes a faith. I mean, he was talking about the belief that unfettered free markets are good for everything. Dominic Raab, Tory MP, writing in The Guardian this week, talking about how to connect with those uh, white working class voters who voted for UKIP, who, you know, didn't um, 
you know, weren't making reasonable wages anymore. His answer was uh, tax cuts for the low paid and uh, no tax rates for the, for the bottom rate and the top rate as well at the same time. He managed to slip that in as well. You know, they're on it all the time. So I think that, um, uh, I mean, in some ways, some of the answers to, to the problems that uh, UKIP uh, argue about aren't going to be very attractive to UKIP voters in some ways, you know, because the answer to um, feeling uh, that politics doesn't listen anymore is more local politicians, more, you know, uh, regional parliaments. Um, the answer to uh, our prob the problems of our ageing population, uh, and there are some reports that suggest that the next generation of European citizens are going to be 25% less of them, than there are now. I mean, you know, we, we need to pay for the care that we hope to get when we're in our, in our 70s. We need new people to come into our country if we want to keep the, world, the National Health Service going. So, you know, these, these are difficult answers that don't uh, uh, offer the simple solutions that someone like UKIP might say by pulling the plug on this and pulling the plug on that. So it's going to be a fight to try and get these, get these ideas out there. But I do think that... Um, Again, it's, it's a tough one. It's, a, it's tough for the English because on one hand, the devolution agenda is being driven by the Scots. On the other hand, the European agenda is being driven by Brussels. And we're kind of in the middle trying to wake up from our, uh, our dreaming, England's dreaming. You know, and it's, it's going to be a painful, it's going to be a painful process, I think. But UKIP, somehow UKIP are part of that. They're, a, they're both a... Uh, an echo from the past, but also a warning from the future, that unless we do address these issues, unless we do find a, a new settlement, an English settlement, that builds on the successes of our multicultural society, but also on the, on the failings of the, uh, the Thatcherite uh, reforms, unless we're able to get the grips with these things, and I, and, I, and I have to agree with our friend up there, I don't see our three main political parties having much appetite for that. Um, it's going to be it's going to be tough. So that's why I'm I was rooting around in the in the undergrowth. I'm looking for somewhere to to sort of like you know start to to fill that space that's uh, that's called England. Okay, I think we've got time for just one last question. Can I have this this woman with the glasses on the side here, please? Yes, you. Um, my name's Liz Philipson. Um, I really appreciated this historical um, and historicism and your, and your analysis in terms of um, England and Englishness. Um, and the, the um, you know, you highlighted the fact that the divine right of kings was, was ended by the execution of Charles. Um, and I also see the EU as being a sort of necessary structure of that size as being necessary. But if we look at the history of the EU, it's a common market. It's a trade agreement. And, you know, true to form, we've now got this horrible, dreadful trade agreement in the offing. Mm, yeah. So do we need a King Charles execution moment to reform the EU? And if so, what is it? No, we don't. We do, yeah. <laughs> we decapitate capitalism. And yeah, we, but you know, that's, you know, they, you, that's easy to say, but what I'm, <laughs> um, one, you know, what, what, if you look historically, there had to be a rupture, there had to be a break yeah. to end the divine right of kings. There, and, what I'm and, saying yeah, is yeah. that the EU 
is um, essentially capitalist, market-orientated in its history as well as in its present. That's and so what, how is that rupture to come about? And okay, you know, we can say, well, end capitalism worldwide, great. No, but no, we I, need didn't some steps. I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say end it. I, I think that's, uh, that's a, a, a very... Uh, a very dated way of looking at the problem, let me just say. Um, I think one of, one of the realisations that has arise, uh, arisen over since the uh, 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 2008 crash is that capitalism only works if consumers consume. If they don't have the money and they don't have the security and the confidence to consume, then the whole damn thing falls apart. That's one of the weird sort of like as our consumerist society has developed and became, become global, lack of confidence in London can end, you know, cause, you know, factories to close down in, in China. It's the, the globalisation has become so interconnected and that very interconnectivity gives us the opportunity to do capitalism in a different way. You know, I mentioned in the uh, Reformation... The, the English didn't abolish Christianity when they dealt with the papacy. They came up with a new kind of, of Christianity that was both local and, for the state, accountable, directly accountable. So perhaps we need to come up with a new kind of capitalism that is local and accountable, that says to those people with their money, offshore, if you're offshore, mate, you're out of it. You're out of it. Now, I'm not talking in strict terms of protectionism here, but I think there is a growing, if you're willing to read the financial pages before you get to the sport, there is a, a growing realisation um, among even the, uh, you know, people like the Bank of England that um, to just let the market run free is, is incredibly damaging. In some ways, it's like, you know, the free market is like, it's like fire, you know. If you, if you harness it, it will give you heat and light and a way to cook your food. But if you just let it go wherever it wants to go, it will destroy everything. And I think people are coming to understand that you don't need to have a Marxist analysis of, of capitalism to understand that. People are experiencing that now. So I have, you know, I remain, uh, I have a lot of faith in people. You know, I'm... I, Embarking in Dagenham in uh, 2006, the British National Party elected 12 councillors, more than they'd elected anywhere else. Every single seat that they, they uh, stood, they won. If they had stood a full slate, they'd have took the council. Much to everybody's surprise. I don't think even they expected it to happen, or they would have stood a full slate. And all of a sudden, my hometown became the racist capital of Britain, which is, you know, frankly, no more racist or less racist than your hometown, where I come from. We just had those bastards knocking on doors, turning people against one another. So... There was a lot of concern out there, and there was, you know, there was, it, again, the vote was from the discontents of, of uh, globalisation, much as in the, what's behind the UKIP vote. But the good thing about Barking and Dagenham was that um, at the next election, they, not only did they not vote any more councillors in, they threw them all out. They looked, people in Barking and Dagenham looked into the face of racist fascism and saw it for what it was, and threw them all out, which was great. Except that just left the Labour Party in control of every seat in the council, which meant that there was no deliberation of policy. Everything was decided before people came in. So, you know, it's either f sort of like, you know, famine or flood. We've got to find a way of adapting this. And I, and I, and I think, you know, the, the, the route into that to 
bring uh, capitalism to account is constitutional in this country. It's constitutional within England. Uh, it's constitutional within the City of London. It's constitutional within the European Union. And the, I'm, I'm encouraged that all those people that I spoke about during the, uh, the, the lecture, you know, the barons and the levellers and, uh, and, uh, were constitutional reformers. They were um, creating uh, a secure society, albeit for themselves, but they were creating a secure society by changing the constitution, and both on a European Union level because of the crisis and on a national uh, UK level because of the Scottish referendum. The opportunity to make those constitutional changes is about to come upon us one way or another. So that's why I think we should be addressing these issues. That's why I think the, the, the issue of England and what it, you know, what it means, what it portends, what it could be, is not something that we should shy away from. When we see during the next few weeks those flags of St George, you know, suddenly flying everywhere. That, you know, that's not the National Front. That's not the, that's not the BNP. That's people enjoying their, their football and wanting to support their team. And we, we, have to, you know, we have to be comfortable with that because, you know, people do feel uncomfortable when they see the flag of St George on the back of a white minivan. Nobody feels like that when they see the flag of Wales. Nobody feels like that when they see the flag of Scotland. But the flag of England often makes people wary. Now, whose, whose problem is that? It's not the Scots problem. It's not the Welsh problem. It's our problem. And the opportunities to address these issues, I think, is, is coming in the next few years. So we should be practising our archery, <laughs> sharpening our executioner's axe, and remembering all those people through our history who whose lives were torn apart by unaccountable power, whether it was the unaccountable power of capitalism in the 20th century, whether it was the unaccountable power of a parliament that wouldn't let them vote in the, in the 19th century, uh, whether it was the, uh, the, uh, the parliament in the 18th century refusing to let them join trade unions, the, the diggers and the levellers, we didn't get much room for the diggers today, but the diggers and the levellers in the 17th century and the... the Radicals reading the Bible in their own language and preaching the gospel with no, uh, you know, with no reverence to the hierarchy of the church or the state in the 15th century. It's all kind of in there. It's it's in our in our DNA, and we just need to respect our friends from UKIP who have found that descent. But we just need to harness that descent in a way that that benefits everybody in society. Um, and, uh, you know, not just those at the top of the pile. OK, well, let me just first of all uh, remind you that Billy Bragg's book is outside, and if you want a, a signed copy, come back um, afterwards. But before you rush off and do that, I'd uh, like to thank you for coming here today. I mean, we've heard a, a truly intriguing lecture that links progress and tradition that draws on history to try and address contemporary problems, and all, I think, in a distinctive, indeed in a clarion voice, calling for a new English identity based on its history of dissent. So can you join me in thanking our speaker, Billy Bragg?